Welcome to Grassroots, formerly Green Street News, Patty and Doug Wood, and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on how to navigate your way through this unhealthy world. This week we'll be talking about plastic pollution, the tiny pieces of plastic that are contaminating the world. We actually had to stop using our reverse osmosis water filter after we learned that the filters that are used to filter out various contaminants are themselves made from plastic and that tiny pieces of plastic are getting into the water. Right, this is what scientists discovered that the actual filters themselves are breaking down into these tiny little plastic particles known as nanoplastics. So it's a, a real problem. So basically any liquid that you've got that's in a plastic bottle is going to contain pieces of plastic. That's right. That's, every, That's right. There's nothing every else to soda, say. Every soda, every juice. That's right. Every... We should be drinking out of glass and stainless steel, period. Emphasis on glass. Yeah, well, when you go down the aisles of the grocery store and you look at the amount of plastic that's there, six packs and 12 packs and cases of water, soda, juice, Everybody is drinking everything out of a plastic bottle. Yeah, but there are a few exceptions, and so those are the things that you have to look for. You look for the glass bottles, and then you bring them home, and you decant it into a glass bottle and add, you know, add a lot of water. If it's juice, you should be watering it down anyway, because juice is such a concentrated form of sugar. Yeah. Also this week, we spoke with the lead scientist on a new study that looked at the prevalence of plastic in protein. So that's not only in fish, which we kind of knew about, but also in other kinds of protein like chicken and pork and even tofu. This is really bad news. Here's some of our conversation with Madeline Milne of the University of Toronto in Canada. So there's a lot of literature on seafood and microplastics. Um, in particular. So it was kind of an idea that came from Ocean Conservancy to take that a step forward and think about, well, what else is kind of relevant to humans? Like, where can we take that research next? And so foods that are being commonly consumed just seem like a good avenue to pursue. And so there has been some other studies looking at microplastics in food, for example, with honey, table salt, bottled water, things like that. Um, but there wasn't like a big focus on these like grocery store staples. Grocery store staples and specifically proteins. Is that correct? Yeah. So we wanted something that was a big part of, you know, the American's diet. Right. So first of all, how did you do the study? And then what did you find? And what was the most interesting or surprising to you? Yeah. So we just bought these foods from the grocery store. We picked a couple different stores so that we could compare a more conventional grocery store and a more like high-end, like natural organic type grocer. And then we, for each product, so we had 16, we chose different brands so that we'd be able to compare if there was a difference there. And then we took all these foods that we bought. They were shipped to University of Toronto, which is where I did the research. And then I used these chemicals that break down the natural materials, like the, the food part, and leave behind the microplastics. And then I was able to look at the microplastics under the microscope and do that kind of analysis. So were you looking for microplastics or also nanoplastics or just microplastics? So the methods we were using, we were kind of constrained by what you're able to see under a microscope, which is down to about 40 microns. Yeah, we didn't really have the methods available to look at nanoplastic, as I'm sure you can imagine going that small is a whole other challenge. I know this, um, was, the, this was the challenge for the researchers at Columbia who were, who were looking at water this past few months. Okay, so you could actually see these microplastics through a regular microscope. And the size of these microplastics, can you give us some relative comparison here? 
Yeah, so microplastics are defined as less than five millimeters in size. So that's if you think of like a grain of rice or smaller, that's kind of the size range. So down to like even like the size of the width of a human hair, like quite small. But visible. But visible with a microscope. So you actually found some visible microplastics in like the flesh of chicken, pork, beef, fish, mm-hmm. etc. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so, okay. So, so why did anybody even suspect that there was going to be, you know, microplastics in chicken and pork and beef? Yeah. In terrestrial proteins. Unfortunately, microplastics have been found almost everywhere that they've been looked for. The ocean, terrestrial, like soil, water, air, pretty much everywhere. And even recently, there's been studies looking at like human tissues. So blood, lungs, stuff like that. And they found microplastics in humans. So it kind of makes sense going from that up to think about, well, what's a pathway for how these microplastics are getting into humans? So one would be breathing them in from the air, and another is food, which hasn't been explored very much. And is there a reason why you chose proteins, or did you choose proteins, or did they just happen to show up more in proteins than in other places? Um, We just chose proteins because... It's a food group that's very widely consumed. So like it's a big part of the diet and it allowed us to compare across different processing levels and also kind of relate it to what's been done with seafood. So we did include some seafood in our our study and as well as these plant-based and terrestrial meats. I think everybody was surprised that you included tofu in this research. We're talking about soybeans. So obviously plastics are being taken up from the environment, maybe from the soil, the air, the water. Were you able to determine the source of microplastics in any of the research you did? Yeah, so we have some ideas. One thing we looked at a little bit was if it was originated from packaging. So we tried to keep track of what packaging each product came in and see if any of the particles that we saw matched up. And we didn't really see that very much. That said, like with our size cut off, maybe there were smaller particles coming off of the packaging that we just didn't see. And we did see maybe one pathway is processing. So we saw that our more processed products, so like chicken nuggets, fish sticks, that kind of stuff had more on average than less processed. So like a chicken breast, pork loin, that kind of thing. So let me stop here, Patty, and just say the pathway they found was processed food. The more processing that happened, the more plastic was in the food itself. Correct, because each processing step is going to introduce more plastic equipment into it. And therefore, you know, the meat is going to have more plastic particles. And people eat a lot of processed food. That's right. Absolutely. Processed meats are, you know, like sausages and then things that are just called processed meats, right? Okay. So luncheon meats and those kinds of things are are very different from a a roast, right? Or or a whole chicken. I think if you want to look at a chicken, a whole chicken probably has the least amount of plastic in it. And chicken nuggets probably have the most amount of plastic in them. Yeah. So that's a lot of what Americans eat on a regular basis, you know? That's right. And not only that, but after the processing of that food through plastic equipment, then it's packaged in plastic. And what really got me is that tofu also contains plastic. Unbelievable. So that's because the plants take up the plastic from the soil. And then obviously it's processed quite a bit. And then it's packaged in plastic. I've never seen tofu that hasn't been packaged in plastic. Sure. Yeah. It's the way it's sold. I buy it. Yeah, I do too. I'm going to look up how to make my own tofu. 
Oh, boy. All right, let's go back to more of our interview with Madeline Milne, lead researcher on this new study. So let's just talk about tofu for a minute. So what did you do with the tofu? How many different types of tofu did you look at? Did you say 16 before? You got 16 of every... We had 16 different products total. So that's across all the different proteins. For tofu specifically, I believe we only had two brands. I think we were just... We only had a couple for that product. And so those were the ones that we looked at. Yeah. So you were testing not just a raw chicken, but you were buying processed chicken as well. We bought both. So we bought like, um, if you imagine, you know, those kind of like styrofoam packages with like a chicken breast or two in them. So we had like those more unprocessed, what we classified as unprocessed versions, but still purchased from the grocery store. But we also had the more processed chicken nuggets and, you know, those kinds of versions of that product. So can you describe for us, talk a little bit about the process in the lab. You said you put chemicals on it and it kind of the story of how you walk into the lab. What do you do and how long does it take for you to get to the end of the experiment? Yeah, so it was actually a little bit more challenging digesting these products. And um, I've done some work with a similar kind of process for fish and it's a bit easier, but this was a challenge because these products are often so fatty. And so it's kind of hard to break down that gets really goopy. (laughs) It's kind of hard to work with a little bit. And even, you know, some of the samples um, we added hydrogen peroxide to, to try to break down that fat and they would just like bubble up, explode, kind of ruined, like lost a couple samples that way. So it was a bit of a learning process there. Um, But basically we found a chemical that works. We use potassium hydroxide and it kind of this like caustic kind of chemical and it it breaks down those natural materials pretty well. Um, And we just leave it in the oven at a low temperature around 40, 45 degrees for 24 hours. And that does a pretty good job. And then after that, we just kind of rinse away everything through a sieve and we're left with the microplastics and a little bit of stuff to kind of pick through under the microscope, but not too bad. So these chemicals actually just kind of eat away the flesh of animal proteins. They just eat the flesh away and then... But they don't eat the plastic. Exactly, yeah. What did you eat, the the, the meal right after you found this? I mean, (laughs) you know, what are you doing in terms of your own diet? Yeah, so I think that's everyone's big question. They want me to say, okay, eat this, don't eat that. Right, we're not I wish I could... that. We just want to know personally, no. what do you eat? Yeah, just what do I, I I still eat all these products. Um, I really want to emphasize, like, the aim of this study wasn't to say you should eat this or that. It's more like we found this contamination that's so ubiquitous. It's in every product that we looked at. And so we should be pushing for these larger scale actions. And so... Um, We need to think more about looking at policy and things like that that will help mitigate plastic pollution and move away from single-use plastics and other initiatives like that. So of the 16 product or categories that you studied, what were the top five proteins that had the most contamination with the microplastics? Yeah, I think it it was all products within our most processed category. So things like chicken nuggets, fish sticks, plant-based burgers, like those kinds of products that are, they have all these extra steps. And the lowest? The lowest was our more unprocessed products. So chicken breasts and pork loin had the lowest. That's really great. Good to hear. (laughs) 
<laughs> Patty just bought chicken, so that's a, that's, that's <laughs> no, good. But I, buy, I always buy a whole chicken for a completely different reason, you know. But you know, I always buy this, you know, organic whole chicken, which is you know a, a small producer, and you know, I know that it's grass fed and blah 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 blah, all that kind of stuff. But we're in the processed food category here. The only thing that we saw that was a significant um, like driver of this contamination was processing. So we didn't see any differences across these stores. So we didn't see a difference between the conventional and the more natural organic grocer. We didn't see any differences across the brands. So it is, again, really emphasizing that this is just kind of this larger issue in our food system that needs to be addressed. And it's less of a like a personal choice, unfortunately, on the, less on the consumer and more on these big scale actions. We did an interview with Mary Beth Kirkham at uh, where is she at Kansas State years ago, actually, talking about microplastics that because farmers use a lot of plastic to for various things on a farm, and the fact that it's being taken up by by the plants themselves. And well, uh, yeah, they they use a lot of them use mulch, but not the really big you know conventional farms. But plastic mulch is common in farming, but but also they use fertilizers that come from from yes. wastewater treatment plants. Yes. Uh, and so you know that the microfibers coming off synthetic clothing are just, I mean, mm -hmm. unbelievably, un unbelievably, you know. Yeah, that's a good um, question, Patty. Did, did you, were you able to distinguish at all the source of the plastic? What kind of plastic was more prevalent in the samples you looked at? Yeah, so it's funny you bring up microfibers because that was the most common kind of microplastic that we saw in our samples. Um, because those are just so common in the environment. I think they're the most commonly observed microplastics quite often in these kinds of studies. We also saw a lot of fragments. So those are kind of hard to know the origin because they could just come from the breakdown of, you know, pretty much any plastic item, you know. And we did see some kind of rubber particles. You would imagine they would come from tires. I don't know if you, you can't really pinpoint that for this kind of study if they were from road wear, but the rubber in these samples could probably be from something, you know, in a, in a factory, you know, that they use rubber conveyor belts, something like that. But that's kind of what you think of as these tire wear particles when you think of rubber usually. Anything you wanted to say that we didn't cover? I think I think we covered a lot. Okay, yeah, I we know. did. We did yeah, cover a lot. Did. We want to know what you think about the future. I mean, you're a young person, you know, moving into this world of toxins that are poorly regulated. Can we survive with this? Onslaught? Yeah. Are you, are you optimistic? I am. I see like as much as it's disheartening to see something like this, where we're seeing microplastics so much. On the other hand, there are, there is a lot of work to combat that. Like there's been a lot of work, especially um, with microfibers, like you mentioned for having filters on washing machines. And so that's been a super effective solution. And there's been a lot of work in terms of policy to get these installed on every new washing machine, stuff like that. So that's um, actually one program that Ocean Conservancy has been working on a lot is promoting that and, and getting bills passed to have this solution implemented more broadly so that it can just have that much more effect. So I think there are solutions. I think work is being done. So I'm not I'm not totally hopeless. I do I do see the brightness at the end and I just think people need to come together and, and work on that. Madeline Milne at the University of Toronto, lead author on a new study about microplastics and the food we are all eating. We'll be right back, right after this break.
All right, lots of news this week. What do you got first? Well, let's just talk about plastic since that's what we're on today. Okay. You know, every day people in California throw away about 15,000 tons of plastic into landfills. And that's actually enough to fill 290 Olympic-sized swimming pools. 15,000 tons of plastic. Plastic right. doesn't weigh very much. That's right. So you can think about the volume there. Yeah. Yeah. So according to the California Department of Resources, Recycling and Recovery, product packaging accounts for more than 50% of that waste. California has a new act that requires significant reductions in plastic packaging and foodware and a dramatic increase in packaging recycling. The bill, SB 54, mandates that all single-use packaging and plastic food service ware like knives, forks, and spoons, takeout containers, plates, and cups in California be recyclable or compostable by 2032, with a 25% reduction in single-use plastic packaging and food service ware and a 65% recycling rate for these materials. So 2032 is a long way away. Yes. Why does it have to take that long for them to, to get to that point? This is always I mean, this question. stuff is available right this now. It's always a question. You create a bill because there's a real need for it, right? And right. then they push it out, you know, 10 years sometimes because, before it has to be implemented. Because industry comes along and, and cries and screams and That's says, oh, exactly this is right. be too hard. But also, you can't recycle plastic. And here they are asking for a 65% recycling rate. Yeah, that caught these, my eye, too. For these packaging and these food service materials. I mean, you they can't haven't, recycle it. They haven't figured out how to recycle plastic, right? They try to turn it into energy, but that creates a lot of air pollution. Well, there's a lot of different things. There's chemical recycling. There's pyrolysis, which is basically burning. And then, and then, then yes, they are trying to make fuel from it, which in every case is a process, a an industrial process that creates more pollution. We got a printer the other day. We ordered a new printer at the office. So the printer comes in. I open up the box. And it's it's clad in styrofoam, right? right. The molded, molded styrofoam that fits thought, that thing perfectly. I thought perfectly. we got away from this because we we know that molded cardboard does just as good a job, and That's you can right. make it out of recycled material. Right. I was really surprised. I mean, it felt like I was back 10, 15 years ago when I opened this box. And not only that, but of course the the printer itself was wrapped in a gigantic plastic <laughs> bag with all this tape around it, and you know it was like. Nobody at Epson seemed to have understood that we have a big plastic problem and styrofoam is basically a no-no. You don't do styrofoam anymore. Nobody does styrofoam. Right. Well, I mean, this California Act says clearly right up front that product packaging accounts for more than 50% of waste. 50%, that's an enormous amount of waste. That's overall. Plastic is 50% of our waste. Okay. And... Well, while we're at it, can we just talk about the plastic industry running this ad again about getting every bottle back? Go ahead. Uh, Run the ad. Uh, yeah, okay. Here's the ad from the plastic industry about get every bottle back. We need to reduce plastic waste in the environment. That's why at America's Beverage Companies, our bottles are made to be remade. Not all plastic is the same. We're carefully designing our bottles to be 100% recyclable, including the caps. They're collected and separated from other plastics. So they can be turned back into material that we use to make new bottles. That completes the circle and reduces plastic waste. Please help us get every bottle back. So there you go. 
this is this is basically lying on television, right? Because yes. they know they can't. You can't make a new bottle out of an old bottle. Right. That we know. So the idea, and, and they say that kind of right up front. They say, I forget the exact phrase they use, but it's something around the, you know, it fiddles around with the idea that they can make another bottle when they know they can't make another bottle out of it. Right. Well, for a couple of reasons. Economically, virgin plastic bottles are so much cheaper to produce than a recycled bottle. You may get a recycled bottle, but just think about all the problems associated with plastic. The microplastics, the chemicals in the plastics, and when you actually make something, when you recycle plastic and you make it into another plastic product that's going to be used for human consumption or for food packaging or whatever, it's going to contain more chemical contaminants, more toxins than the original bottle did. You know, and I'm betting that they're probably going to take a tiny, tiny little amount of the recycled plastic and put it in the new plastic, and so they can say this bottle is made from recycled plastic. Right. I understand. You know, I understand this is all about money. And you it's, have to follow the money on this. And they're treating it like a PR problem. Right. right? And, it's not a real problem. And you do know that the plastics industry knew that plastic couldn't be recycled. They've always Decades, done decades ago. And they've been pushing this on the American public. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here's another thing to discuss. Shell Oil Company, or its subsidiary, Shell Polymers Monica, has built this tremendous new petrochemical plant in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, and that's the ethane cracker. The ethane cracker plant to make more plastic. Jesus. And they got a tax break worth more than $1.5 billion over 25 years. It turns out that the economic studies that were used to calculate the benefits to the state and used to convince lawmakers this was a good deal were totally flawed. <laughs> Surprise so there. So they're not going to... Yeah. So the and, now, and now it turns out that the studies were commissioned and funded by Shell, and this is how things get done. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So the studies to prove that there was going to be a great economic benefit mm -hmm. were commissioned by Shell, who's building the plant, and going to get the tax breaks. So that's how it's done, right? Oh, and this, this, is, this actually is how things get done. The factory hasn't delivered anything close to those economic benefits that were promised. And in fact, Food and Water Watch is reporting that since opening in the fall of 2022, the plant has delivered multiple malfunctions, air permit violations, and lots of pollution for people living nearby. Yeah, I heard about this. These the, fence line communities. Yeah, they've been fined a whole bunch. I mean, this is a brand new plant. They just built it. It cost, you know, however many hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's still violating the air quality permit that they have. Right. Well, you understand that the petrochemical industry is really ramping up to produce more plastic. Because as electric cars, you know, come more and more and more into our space, right? And as we begin to use renewable energy sources, they need to make money from drill, drill, drill. The only solution is to turn off the tap. That's the only solution here. You, know, you can't recycle your way out of our plastic mess. Mm -hmm. Now we're understanding that plastic is showing up in all the food, basically our entire food supply. Right, and if someone was eating us, we would be also filled with microplastics. <laughs> The cannibals better watch out. Yep. So I'm going to switch gears and talk about this article in The Guardian this week that tells about how there are documents showing that the uh, Air Pollution Foundation, this nonprofit group that was funded by the oil and gas industry, 
knew back in the 1950s that greenhouse gases was going to cause climate change. And that included the work of this fairly famous scientist named Charles Keeling. We're still using his, his formula to kind of assess where we are. Uh, it's called the Keeling Curve that charted the kind of the way climate change was going to, uh, you know, increase our temperature here on Earth because of carbon dioxide levels. Right. So, you know, the idea that they knew this back in, I think his first report was like in 1954. He came out with this report and said, look, burning fossil fuels is going to change the makeup of our climate. And as a result, the Earth is going to warm. So this is a this is a, a foundation funded by Ford and Chrysler and General Motors and the American Petroleum Institute and the Western Oil and Gas Association. Right. They were all funding it. They all got the reports. They all knew what was going to happen. Right. So I mean, if if your if your child is doing a report on climate change, it would be really interesting for them to look up this Keeling curve. Yeah. Right. This is named after him, which tracks the steady increase of the atmospheric carbon that's driving this climate crisis. It's been hailed as one of the most important scientific works of modern times. Let's talk about it. Let's at least let our kids learn about it. I mean, there's some parallels here. The plastics industry knew that the creation of this particular material was completely unsustainable that it was going to cause huge problems. It couldn't be recycled. It had toxic components to it that were never going to to degrade. Right. It had toxic never. components to it that were never going to degrade. Yeah. Same thing with burning fossil fuels here for for fuel and for energy. This guy knew decades and decades and decades ago, almost a half a century ago. Yes, more than a half century ago in the in this case. Well, he knew that fossil fuels were going to be a problem. And today, burning fossil fuels is our, I mean, there are other problems, you know, that we have that contribute to climate change. But right. fossil fuels is 75% of the problem. 90% of all carbon dioxide emissions are coming from burning fossil fuels. That's right. 90% right, right, is right, coming right, from right, burning right, right. fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a gigantic truck or it's a, you know, a, an old furnace or whatever it is that's burning fossil fuels, that's where our carbon dioxide emissions are coming from. Well, you know. okay. So let's talk about Joe Biden and LNG. So just recently, Joe yeah. Biden paused approvals for pending and future applications to export liquefied natural gas, or LNG, for new projects, a move that could delay decisions on new plants until after the November 5th election. So the Department of Energy is going to conduct a review during the pause that will look at the economic and environmental impacts of projects seeking approval to export LNG to Europe and Asia, where the fuel is in hot demand and they can get more money for it. Okay, but wait a minute. I think the people that work at the Department of Energy are probably really good people and they're going to produce a really good report. And I'm worried about the people at the top who are influenced by industry and who may change that report before it comes out. It's hard to, to Patty, don't, the entire fracking industry is reliant on exporting. They're making more gas than we can use. They want to export it and make money. Right. They've built all these pipelines. They've spent billions of dollars building pipelines for the sole purpose of taking the fracked gas and taking it out to the port where they can stick it on a ship and send it overseas. Well, right. Well, you know. 
For those who don't know what LNG is, it's liquid natural gas or liquefied natural gas. And it's created by cooling fracked gas to minus 160 degrees Celsius, which creates a clear mm. colorless liquid 600 times smaller than natural gas so that it makes it easier to transport through pipelines for long distances and to load onto tankers for global export. Yeah. Yep. It's just hard for me to imagine with that kind of financial investment and the power of the, you know, the oil and gas lobby that the Department of Energy is going to come out and say, you know what, you can't have your LNG port. What are they going to do? <laughs> you know, they built the infrastructure. We let them build the whole thing out to allow hey. this to happen. And now we're going to say, sorry, guys. Right. That's a, I don't see that happening. I could be wrong. I don't see it. All righty. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Madeline Milne, everyone who contributed to the show. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Grassroots. Thanks for listening.